The R&B Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series for the creative minds with a passion for possibility. Hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Today's Solutionist Thinker, Dr. Judy Dlamidi. She is a qualified medical doctor, but she went into business early on. Right next door to her doctor's surgery, she opened her first micro-enterprise with a young man called Sizwen Khasana. She'd go on to marry him, and they become the power couple of South African business. Dr. Judy Dlamidi is today's Solutionist Thinker. I've always been very positive and very ambitious because I wasn't born in a township. I was born in what became later a white area. So it's not like I grew up in a township where I didn't know how the other half lived. I knew it, it was in my face every day. And uh, instead of being negative and saying I'm less, people look like me, I was like, I am not less. I am going to prove to myself that I'm equal to all these people, I'm just different. I'm Bruce Whitfield, and you're listening to RMB Solutionist Thinking. How do you define yourself? A hardworking wife, mother, grandmother. Everything else comes behind that. So I think that's the most important thing. The medical degree, I mean, you were determined from a little girl that you were going to be a doctor. Did you have medicine in the family anywhere? Not at all. Actually, that's why I wrote the book, uh, The Other Story, because you don't have to be inspired by people within your family or people that you related to. You can get inspiration from just listening to a story or seeing someone that looks like they're in charge of their destiny, which is my story. From four, my half-sister used to talk about, she's a professional nurse even to this day, and she used to talk about everything that happens in the ward. And there was a matron, there was a doctor, And can you imagine as a four-year-old, I guess I've always loved control because it seemed like the doctor had the final word. He just had his story figured out. And then I met uh, the late Dr. Kabashe, and he was a medical doctor and he looked like an accomplished person. And I was like, I'm going to be that guy when I grow up. But you knew it from a young age? I knew it the whole time growing up. How long did you practice for? 13 years. Medicine seems like one of the hardest ways to make a living. You're never dealing with happy people. You're never dealing with people who are feeling their best. You're always seeing people at their worst. It actually is the best thing I ever did because you have the ability to have that woman or that man walking through the door feeling down and you make her feel so special because they are. And they do come back happy. It's like an extended family. You become part of them. They trust you with their secrets. You feel like you're making a small contribution in their lives. So it's, it's, it's the best thing I ever did. It's special. If it was so big and so yeah. special, why move out of medicine and into business? Because it's a calling. When you're dealing with a calling and you're serving people, you need to have the passion. I had all the passion when I did it. When I lost that passion, I left. And that's fair to everyone. What was the loss of passion? For the longest of times, I thought it's because I was marked outside my practice. Uh, I had, like you said earlier, I had a bakery next to Susan and I actually had a bakery next to my practice. And uh, before we started having Fidelity Guard to collect their takings, I used to take the takings. On this particular day, I actually got off my, out of my practice. The car was in order. You know how it goes. They saw it somewhere. It was ordered to be sold across the, the country. And uh, they came for a car and found cash. 
So I became a target and uh, it, it was just unpleasant from that time on. The Cs where you refer to, of course, is your lesser known husband, Cs oh, I, I wish. <laughs> um, where did you meet? What at at high school? school, actually, St. Francis College, a Catholic boarding school in Pinetown, a small town in Devon. Did you know I, he was destined for good things? I didn't, but we were kids, like uh, teenagers. Uh, but three months after going out with him, I was like, oh, I would so marry this guy. Damn, I met him too young. But he didn't know, you see. I just saw the goodness in him, you know, but I didn't know he would do so well. From that shy, handsome, intelligent boy, I, I didn't know what to expect, to be quite honest. He's I still just, quite shy. I just loved him. He'll always be shy. You don't stop being shy. I'm shy, always will be. You just learn to deal with it because of the positions you find yourselves in. In those days, as you as yeah. medical doctor, you would have been earning a decent enough income. You started yeah. the business on the side with Seaswear. Yes. I mean, what were the family finances like in those days? I mean, clearly young and ambitious and upwardly mobile, that's what you were about. Young, extremely ambitious, extremely hardworking, and uh, we were okay because one of the things that drove me uh, over and above purpose, which I later realized that is what it's called and that is what it is, I wanted to be financially independent. I wanted my kids to, to, to go to the best schools that the school the money could buy. I wanted to have holiday overseas. I wanted to be, I wanted good things. And I knew you don't work hard for them, you don't get them. So you just work hard. Fortunately, that was shared by my husband. But you were growing up in a deeply dysfunctional society. You were living in a deeply dysfunctional society. This is toward the end of the apartheid era, of I'm course, assuming. Of course. I mean, those ambitions were very real and natural in an unnatural environment. Could you feel that it would change and you would be able to exercise those ambitions? I've always been very positive and very ambitious because I wasn't born in a township. I was born in what became later a white area. So it's not like I grew up in a township where I didn't know how the other half lives, not even half, but anyway, I knew it. It was in my face every day. And uh, instead of being negative and saying I'm less, people who look like me, I was like, I am not less. I am going to prove to myself that I'm equal to all these people. I'm just different. So the title of my first book is an epitome of what I believed in, what sustained me. Equal. Equal, but, but different. different. Is that what motivated this move into education? Sees we're very involved in education now. He went to telecom, he went to, to first rand, uh, and then was given the hospital pass of hospital passes in terms of uh, being told that he was the guy who somehow, with a yeah. magic wand, was going to need to fund tertiary education for hundreds of thousands of aspirational young people. He, he took it on and then passed it on and is mm. now trying it again in a new iteration. But you've got that very strong commonality there, this drive for education. We always have. We always have because I knew even then, and so did Siswe, that education is the liberator. Education will take me out of this, and that's how I'll prove I'm equal because I'll just make sure that I get educated. And even as a young couple, we gave back to our aluma, uh, alma mater, uh, Maron Hill, and to so many other places. Even now, our family trust, the PBO, is actually focused on three things. One of them is education, and uh, there's a big bias uh, actually towards that as opposed to health and rural development. Uh, so one of the things that's very important to us is that the only way 
for us as a country, as a people, to sustain whatever is built is by killing inequality. And the best way of killing inequality is education, is telling the positive story. Because for a child who is in a very rural area, uh, who has no hope, who doesn't have parents, who has a grandmother who can't afford just putting food, food, on, food on the table, you have to say to that child, it's possible. You know, so that is what drives us. It's possible, other people have done it, you can. And try and help in whatever way you can. Um, it, it puts a question to the focus on the tertiary sector, where so much attention in South Africa is based simply because people see that as the passport out of poverty. Mm-hmm. It's the opportunity to get the job that will take you out of your past and give you a chance at a future. Mm-hmm. But this problem starts so much earlier. Yeah, I mean, it does. all the data, all the statistics, so well worn by now, exactly. show that you know, the developmental phase, three, four, five years old, the president recently in yeah. the state of the nation uh, he was talking about we need to make yeah. uh, preschool compulsory exactly and it's a huge it's a gargantuan task it is it is it is the way i look at it because i find that people get overwhelmed when they look at the size of the problem and they think what role can i play i'm only the small person and i always say each one of us just focus on what change you can make where you are one life at a time Because if each one of us, because I define myself as privileged, I have education, I live where I want to live, and I I do what I want to do, that's privilege. Now, how do you use that privilege to make life better for the next person? Because each one of us has a responsibility. And actually, it doesn't have to be someone because they have money or they have a job. Even as a student, you know, when we we're medical students, when we we're doing first year, we used to teach maths because that's what we're good at to kids that uh, had failed metric and they wanted to improve their maths during our spare time. So all I'm saying is whatever you have, you can share and make a difference. It doesn't have to be money. If there's money too, by all means, but whatever you have, share it with someone who doesn't have. It goes back to the, the 1980s cry. I mean, each mm. one teach one. I mean, I it's know, a trade exactly. union cry. Yes. I mean, it's not anything new in South Africa, yet we seem to have lost sight of it. So true. To Mamina, we were raised that way. What can I do? It's not about what can the country do for you? What can other people do for you? What can you do with what you have? So to Mamina is, I'm happy that the current president has actually reminded us that, by the way, this is where we come from and this is who we are. We need to remind each other all the time. Well, we used to talk a lot about Ubuntu, but we seem to have lost focus on Ubuntu. And Ubuntu has also been abused and oh, yeah. almost uh, it, it no longer holds the same sort Not of true. rich value true. in the same way because it's just a concept that's been abused. Maybe Tumamina is the new Ubuntu. I know. Change the name, but it's really about mm. what can you do? show humaneness and make a difference. What made you take the Chancellor's job at Wits University? I mean, if you ever want to step into a powder keg at any point in South African history, whether it be in the 60s, the early days of New SAS and the 70s, where there was a strong student movement, Mm. the politics of of, of student politics was was very strong then through transformation of the student body through the 80s, 90s and the early 2000s. And now it's this call for fee-free education. I mean, you've stepped into potentially a cauldron. You know, I look at it differently. Just quickly, as a student, I was one of them. 
I was one of them. I tell you, when I was doing second year, we boycotted classes for 10 weeks. And you know what we were boycotting for? For education to be free and fair. We believed it. That's the beauty with being young. That's the beauty of believing in a cause. One of the things that drives me these days is how do I give back wherever I am? One of the things that I contemplated doing after finishing the book Equal But Different and finishing my doctorate was that I want to give back by teaching maybe. You know where you actually at a, a space where you're saying, how do I give back? So I'd been approached by different universities for the chancellor position. And I was like, no, no, because it wasn't the right time. When this came, I thought, this is the closest I'm going to do to teaching. I won't be teaching, but I'll have access to a tertiary institution and see how I can be used. Fortunately, when it comes to strikes and all those things, we have a very good management team led by our vice chancellor, Adam Habib. So there's always that confusion that people expect me to go to the media and talk about the strike, but it's not in my place to do that because we have executive to take care of that. I assist where I can, I check with management what is happening and offer counsel where required, but the roles are quite clear. It's an honor to actually be a chancellor at Vitz, my alma mater, and my son's alma mater, the only institution in the world that I share with my son. What do you see as the future of tertiary education? There's so much noise around tertiary education, the idea that tertiary education needs to be decolonized. I mean, Vitz University has held its head up, particularly the medical school, the mining school, as a global leader in many respects. Yeah, it I mean, is. Do we run the risk of undermining tertiary through a lack of funding, confused funding, through this desperate desire to break with the past to create a new future that nobody has yet defined? You know, I think it's always important to understand that tertiary institutions, all institutions, exist within a context, right? And each institution has to be relevant to the context. Who are we? Why are we here? How can we work together to make it a better country? Each institution has this, that responsibility. Now, when it comes to VITS, what I like about VITS is that they prove that transformation doesn't have to be at the expense of excellence because they prove that transformation actually enhances excellence if done correctly. It has to remain relevant, relevant to all stakeholders, business, communities. That's important. So I think we need more collaboration with other institutions within the continent as well as in the first world. I start with within the continent because it, it's quite important to know who we are, what we're trying to achieve individually and collectively. And I think right now, Vitz is doing what's right. There's always room for improvement, but yeah, I'm happy with what's being done. You mentioned your son, and your son yeah. tragically died. Seven years, seven ago, years ago, We it was the seventh anniversary this year. But that doesn't rocked your vision of the world. I mean, as traumatic and as painful and as you revisit it every single year and every single day, it seems to have galvanized rather mm. than broken you or changed your view of the world. You know, I think that one of the best things that maybe I give credit to to my parents is just having a positive attitude 
even at the worst of times. Mm. When I'm at the deepest of my sorrows, I actually say to my creator, what do you want me to do? How can I turn this and make it better eh, for myself and the next person? Because if you were to look at what you don't have and to look at the losses that you've had in life, and I'm actually the only survivor out of my full siblings and my parents. Eh, I have eh, two half-siblings. But that is actually very painful and lonely. But if you were to delve in that, you wouldn't achieve much because you'll be pitying yourself. You actually say, look, I'm here. My son was such a better person than I could ever dream to be. What can I do to make it count for him? You know, and uh, if life can be cut so short, what can I do in the day that I have or a week? No one knows how much you have. How can I just make it better? So I think... Things like that, tragedies, focus you. We're made by the people we interact with. We're made yeah, by the yeah. people who are in our lives and people who have been in our lives. Exactly. And as traumatic as it is, yeah. they've contributed to who we become. Oh, yeah, a lot. And those tragedies contribute to who you become. You are a very quiet activist on gender issues, but a very firm activist on gender issues. You're a very firm believer in the equality of genders, in the right of women to have their place at the table. And you demand that they have their right, but you do it very gently and very subtly <laughs> and very forcefully and purposefully. I'm very shy. And I don't like noise. I just don't like noise. You You're know? in the wrong place if you don't like noise. <laughs> <laughs> this is no, no, no. South Africa is crazy for noise. It depends. It depends on how you look at it. Because you can be in a room of a riot and be at peace. And just focus on what it is you are there for and what it is you can do. I believe in equality across all social identities. Gender happens to be one of them. You know, race, your sexual orientation, who cares? How does it affect the next person? You're still equal to everyone else. So I just believe that people are born equal and uh, that has to be respected. And I think when you don't utilize all the resources that you have and respect them equally, you lose out as a nation. You lose out as an economy. It's not just the women that lose. It's the economies that lose. So I, I truly believe in that. Is there a place for noisy agitation? Is there a place for noisy activism? There is. I you always, were that noisy activist in 1980. When I was young and I have that. scars to show for it, beaten <laughs> by police dogs. <sighs> I think each one of us has to work to their strength. It's not every one of us who's going to stand on the podium and shout. Uh, those that can, by all means, whatever resource you have, whatever strength you bring to the table, use it if it's going to make the society better. For me, I work with my strength. I'm more hands-on. I try to make the change every day. It might be small. No one might notice, which is great, because I also love my privacy, which is kind of weird, because when you write books you actually lose a part of yourself. But if it's going to make a meaningful change for just one person, it's worth it. So I just try to focus on what I can impact on, on what I can change, and run with that. A lot of people sort of like to say, I did it myself. I'm a self-made person, a self-made woman, a self-made man. You're not that person. Mm -mm. 
even now, starting with my parents who made me who I am, who influenced the way I see the world, and I thank them eternally for that. My husband, uh, who's been my partner now, I've known him for 45 years, I think. Yeah, it's actually 45 years. And uh, though we haven't been married for 45 years. But my team at work, you know, you are able to do the things that you love, writing books, and there's business on the side, because someone else grabs the ball that you drop because you drop balls. Mm. That's just life. You're like, oh my goodness, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But you know what? Life happens. And uh, I'm at an age where I'm like, I'm lucky to be here. What do I want to do today? What do I want to do in the next five years? And there is so much other things that I'm committed to, but I have to do this because it feels like it's a purpose I have to serve before I'm called. So I run with it and other people make sure that my other commitments are taken care of. You can't do it alone. You just cannot. Who's your greatest collaborator? Sizwe is, and our daughter has joined. Sizwe runs with the Sviso Learning Group, which yeah. is education, ed tech, Sviso Publishing and stuff. And uh, she's there and also Mbegani. So she actually, it's mainly dad, though, you know, dad, girls, and the. <laughs> but I, I'm there too, so I'm not complaining. Yeah. What is next for Judy Tamini? I mean, the mere fact that you kept your name in South Africa at the time that you and Caesar got married says a lot about your sense of independence and your sense of forthrightness and your sense that you don't need anybody else's identity. You have an identity. You were born Judy Tamini and yeah. you are Judy Tamini. In this world of collaboration and yeah, interdependency, yeah. You're very much individual. I think when you come together and form a team, the strength of that team is the strength of each member of the team. You have to know who you are, be comfortable with who you are, then you are a better contributor to the team. You know, as opposed to when you actually don't know who you are, you're expecting on the other team member to tell you who you are, then you have a problem. Judy Lamini, thank you very much indeed for <laughs> coming you. in. The businesswoman, the chancellor at Wits University. Big job on her hands in that particular role. Former director of Aspen Pharmacare, co-founder of Future Nation Schools with her husband, Sizwen Klasana, and of course the chairperson of the Mbekani Group, an investment company that invests across industries too. And oh yes, a medical doctor too. R&B, solutionist thinking. For more in this series, visit 702.co.za.